0: So, you know, uh, a lot of trial and error, and just uh, we approached it very slowly, and it took probably a solid decade uh, from going from those garlic beds that we seeded, realizing we didn't need to till them, till we were fully into a no-till system. And like I was telling you earlier, even if, if we enter into a new field or start new fields, You know, we always till. We we set a stage very carefully with tillage implements in order to move our production system into no-till.
1: Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from organic vegetable farmer, Brian O'Hara. He's the author of No-Till Intensive Vegetable Culture, Pesticide-Free Methods for Restoring Soil and Growing Nutrient-Rich, High-Yielding Crops. When we decided to tackle the conversation around the role of tillage in our 2023 symposium, Brian was the first farmer we reached out to and we're excited to share his thoughts here with you.
2: Welcome to the uh, Real Organic Podcast, and I'm very pleased to be, be talking to Brian O'Hara, whom I've known for a while now. And Brian, I, I, I met you the first time, I think, was at that NOFA summer conference, and uh, I gave a workshop at the same time as you, unfortunately which meant nobody came to mine. No, sorry, every about farmer was there, sorry about that. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. You deserved it. Every farmer who was there. It was a year workshop. And, uh, I was like, what is this that everyone's going to? And it, it was, it was really interesting. So, uh, and of course what you were talking about was, was no-till organic vegetable farming. And, uh, I've heard you talk about it many times now. I always, I always go to your talk when I can if I'm at a conference, and I just got to see it and taste it as well. Wow, so great. thank you for that. Oh yeah. So you're doing a lot of work around this, and um, I wanted to, I wanted to include you in this conversation. The the conference this winter is going to be about. The question is organic regenerative, and and the second question is regenerative organic. And there's a lot of opinion on this, a lot of spread on it, and also a lot of confusion about it, what what these words mean. I know you're not such a big one for words. You don't talk about what you do, Uh, you don't call it organic that I know of, maybe you do, but I call it organic what Mm -hmm. you do. And uh, I don't think I've heard you call it regenerative. It's what you do, uh, yeah. And and you draw from yeah. all traditions, yeah, right, right, mm-hmm. as as well as biodynamic, which you have a lot mm-hmm. of respect for that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, do you think that those those names get in the way of understanding?
0: Uh, it it people are confused these days you know about all the different names and the meaning of them and so we you know we have relatively small production you know four or five acres of vegetables and relatively local markets and things so uh, we don't really need additional terms for marketing purposes really and the what we find is basically the most important thing that people are concerned about and can understand easily is that we do not apply pesticides to our crops. And so it's very straightforward, simple. It is really what they uh, seem to care the most about. And so you know we simply explain or put on signs or whatever uh is the appropriate the appropriate locations that uh we don't apply pesticides of any nature organic pesticides approved or uh you know conventional pesticides and uh yeah so that's really in terms of marketing and what we would call our vegetable crops is that they have not had pesticides applied to them
2: yeah well, I
0: care about that, too, so... Mm-hmm. Right. that's you know, yeah, pretty we,
2: important to we all, people. We all care about that. Mm-hmm. It's not all I care about. I think right. there, there are other parts that are pretty important,
0: mm-hmm. too. Right. Um, but it keeps it simple. It keeps it simple. Right. Yeah. So, tell me, when did you start growing vegetables? Well, obviously, I always grew up growing, uh, growing vegetables and various crops. You know, as even as a young person, you know, in the family and stuff. But, so you grew up on a farming family. No, my father was in building, but we always just kept a, a garden. A yeah, yeah. So you know, so you know, I was around vegetables my whole life, and uh, didn't really take to the building trade with my father, but liked. He was very independent and uh, had his own business. So uh, I did like the independence of running my own business. And so, you know, I basically moved quickly into uh, uh, farming uh, once I graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. When I was 18, I told my father, I said, ah, I figured it out. I'm gonna be a musician. And Pop said, oh, just keep your day job. I said, Oh, okay. And then uh maybe about six months later or so, I said, No, no, Pa. I, I figured it out now. I'll be a farmer. And he said, Oh, oh. And he goes, Well, at least you're not gonna starve. And then uh, you know, it it a little better than musician, you know. Yeah. Um uh, so because obviously, farming—you know—back then, that would have been the late '80s—was uh, not economically looking economically viable in the in the uh, you know what was going on then it was just terrible. Farms were going out of business everywhere, but uh, the the organic movement had started up by the '80s, yeah. and so organic was gaining traction. And uh, we knew we were working in, I I got a job at a health food store. And uh, so I became familiar with organics and organic uh, local growers and, you know, kind of got into the local network and understood, you know, here's a a possibility. You know, these guys are making it. Maybe just barely, but, you know, they had their their operations going. So uh, I think by around like 1990 or so, Eighty-nine, ninety was our first getting into commercial vegetable cropping, and uh, so we started up small. Kept my day job for a few years and just getting built on it. And but fortunately, uh, we had moved here to Lebanon and were neighbors with uh, Gilbert Risley, who was a vegetable grower, commercial vegetable grower from you know he'd been growing in the uh, probably at least in the 40s probably certainly by the 50s and he got out of uh vegetables by the 60s when things had started to uh, decline with uh there was a lot of uh, importation of vegetables suddenly from California and stuff and they could produce vegetables in California and undercut the local market here because of you know various you know policies and things that allow for that kind of movement of crops to happen and uh, at, at that kind of pricing. And so uh, basically he was undercut in pricing. So uh, he moved out of uh, vegetable production and he moved into mostly blasting and uh, construction work. But there we were, and he had retired, uh, but there we were moving in and, uh, next door and starting up a, a vegetable operation right next to a guy that had experience starting with horse cultivation all the way through to chemical age and the and tractors and equipment equipment, you know, the, the, he had the full range of experience. So he quickly brought us up to speed on our agricultural techniques and he was obviously my mentor. And uh, so, you know, Gilbert Risley is really the reason why we got off on such a good foot and he was very excited about organic and the ability of us to prep to price our vegetables higher than the grocery stores because the grocery store tomato was still selling at whatever 99 cents back then a pound yet we could charge two dollars or 250 or i don't remember exactly our pricing back then but we weren't we weren't uh, controlled by the conventional vegetable price and so we were released from the market controls and we could charge whatever we wanted or needed to be viable as long as the customers were willing to pay that and they were willing to pay quite a bit by that point for pesticide free produce we were certified organic uh, when it was run by our local NOFA chapter you know we we self-certified it was uh, essentially industry self-regulation at that point. We participated in that. We are very happy to participate in that. And uh, so we had an agreed-to self-regulation with all the farmers in the state. And uh, it was a very successful program. And we were very happy to be certified organic at the time. And uh worked great, you know, got the word out. You know, And uh, we uh, quickly built the farm to more and more production. And then we were just off and running from there. You know, I could go on, and on. I don't know if yeah. you have additional questions. Well,
2: yeah. So okay. So re- relatively early, you became organic. You were you were certified, mm-hmm. and um, it, I hear it was a good market. You all mm-hmm. did you also believe in it? I mean, in other words, was it was there an element of I think there's a better way to grow food, or was it simply economic?
0: Oh no, certainly. Yeah, there was. Uh... Yeah, uh, you know, made clear sense in terms of how to grow food. Um, I'm trying to think if there was any, like, yeah, you know, at that point, you know, this is all pre-internet and that kind of thing. You know, information was largely just transferred from one farmer to another. Yeah. You know, my mentor had plenty of experience with the use of manures and composts and things for the growth of vegetable crops. You know, and although he was aware of chemical usage, you know, he was certainly not of a mind that it was better, you know, potentially only faster or, you know, economically, that's what was done at the time. But, you know, he he was totally, you know, and other growers as well, like were like you can grow or your crops simply by the recycling of organic matter you know, the organic method, taking organic materials and returning them to the earth to grow the new crops, which is not like, it's nothing stunningly, you know, complex, it was just a, it's just a simple recycling of this. and So, you know, it's very easy to understand, very easy to get into it as a young grower. You know, obviously a little limestone, minerals. Yeah. But and people were willing to support that
2: because that's the food they wanted.
0: And that was the food that they wanted. And we were getting great crop response you know yeah, and so uh it's just that's something you know. Elliot always
2: says he says you know the thing that some the, the conventional world leaves out is this works it works right. it works Yeah, it, it's like right. you can grow really good food this mm-hmm. way so yeah. alright so you were what we would call a, a, a m- typical m- intensive market market gardener mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. Somewhere in there, you got an idea about what if I didn't
0: till the soil. Yeah. How did that happen? Right. Great question, because obviously what happened was the standard organic method that we were following started failing. Uh, The simple system of simply recycling organic materials that were in my environment and returning them to the soils was not leading to uh, vigorous disease free crops anymore. It had before, but now it, it had, wasn't. And now it wasn't. And so, as time was going on, we were starting to see more and more problems. Whereas at first, we saw less and less problems using just a very simple organic method. Uh, and then, I don't know by when, maybe around like 2000 or so, we started seeing decreasing yields and, and more problems, like fungal disease problems in particular, I remember, was one of the things. And it occurred to me one year, which was really, and at first I thought it was just our production system. Mm-hmm was insufficient uh, the organic materials or, or whatnot uh, were failing. But then uh, oh, you're in here. Uh, what what I came to realize in uh, a f- an important moment was one day I realized that I was looking at my crops that had fungal diseases, and it was particularly the wet season. And there was abundant problems, and but I noticed that the fungal problems didn't stop at the edge of the field, and the fungal problems just continued right off the field into the uh, grasses and straight into the forest. And that observation was when I realized that actually it's not really necessarily. My agricultural practices, it is that everything is becoming ridden with insect and disease. Mm-hmm. And because it wasn't, you know, it's one of those experiments like, you know, well, this one, you know, it, the control is also diseased. Yeah. And that led me to the realization of just what was going on was actually massive environmental changes that were causing uh, nutrient deficiencies, pestilence, disease problems on everything. And then, of course, I started to really observe even more closely environmental conditions and have come to realize that it's... Uh, essentially seems like you know an, an easy term for it is just pollution but it's it's pretty extensive and it affects you know the rain it affects soil it affects air quality it affects the sunlight and so all the major uh, building components of plants have been uh, uh altered to a detriment Mm -hmm. and so It's not that the organic system was Was a failure. It's that the organic system couldn't keep up with the environmental changes So we had to start uh, changing the production system to make things as vital as possible And uh, let me just finish that in terms of the organic system, one of the things that, you know, I came to realize that is, you know, I've never like tested this all out and and looked at nutrient qualities of of what I'm about to say. But uh, essentially what I think is going on, is that if I take the materials from my environment, like the tree leaves, the wood chip, the grasses, and they are nutrient deficient and prone to diseases, I can't expect, and these are the basis of my composting system, I can't expect those materials that I then compost to deliver me A compost that can keep my crops free from insects and diseases. Essentially because they themselves did not have the vitality, the nutrients, whatever components that it takes to stay disease-free, they did not have. And by simply composting them, which is what I did in the past with tremendous success, but you know they themselves are essentially run down. And so to take run-down materials and compost them and put them on my field, probably is not delivering the the appropriate uh, compost to keep my crops disease free anymore.
2: Brian, one one question: uh, Did you do much with green manures back then, did, or was it mostly compost that you relied it,
0: on? It was mostly compost we were relying on. We certainly cover cropped in the winter. Yeah, uh, and that's what I would like to point out is that although at when at this time we started moving into no-till and I, I do think no-till is one of the best factors that improved our production system and we saw tremendous results you know just trialing that and not trialing it and we did many things including much more cover cropping much more diversity of cover cropping uh, uh, definitely switched the mineral program away from simple limestone uh, rock phosphates and into a much more uh, careful, intensive mineral usage. You know, many different minerals, a lot of ocean products, for trace elements, and we've increased our foliar program extensively. So we, you know, we didn't just go to no-till to address these these changes you know if if I had to choose one and I could only choose one that would probably be the one I would choose but it it takes I think more than just no-till at this point you know we, we very carefully manufacture our composts you know you know all kinds of you know fertility adjustments heavy cover cropping you know much much more Right.
2: So, sort of, sort of yeah. like being the first woman academic uh, in, in a university, you got to be better than everybody at everything just to be equal. Mm-hmm. You know, you're right. saying that, that mm-hmm. you had to get better at everything, everything in order to still have healthy crops. Yeah. Where in the world did you get the idea of no till? I mean, who was talking about no till in 2000?
0: Uh, uh, what, what suggested that to you? Let's see. A lot of it was just basic experience uh, with seeing what tillage would do and what less tillage would do. So, you know, early on when we didn't understand the ramifications of over-tillage, we would over-till, particularly, I can remember specific examples with Mm rototillers where it over-oxygenated soil, and we would have a poor crop growth over something that we hadn't. Uh, tilled so extensively you know so just field results themselves were were the, definitely pointing us that direction.
2: Would the crop literally look
0: poorly or, or yeah so like over tillage you know I can remember there would be you know too much air in the soil yeah. poor germination poor transplant set uh, and then the growth would be you know just disturbed slower just Uh, you know, at that point, you know, I was just looking at, like, physical soil, Mm -hmm. you know, problems, like, you know, not enough, too much air, but it would be later that I would understand its ramifications on, like, nutrient delivery, biological conditions, you know, that I came to realize that tillage is so highly related to nutrient imbalances or different conditions of, because, you know, a tillage causes just traumatic death and destruction in the soil, so it causes a a dramatically different nutrient profile than than an untilled soil. So, but yeah, we saw, you know, just from physical characteristics from field conditions, you know, things just weren't pointing us. To less tillage, so you know we, we so started you started by just reducing, reducing tillage. tillage, yeah, it's more shallow, yeah, yeah, getting away from roto tillers, shallower, more discs and field cultivators, and things like that, moving towards less aggressive churning action, yeah uh you know, and essentially you know, like I can remember early on times like you know once we're once we're we were in the reduced tillage mindset. Then we would finish off a garlic crop, say, right? And we had it heavily mulched, weed-free. And we just harvested every plant out of the patch. And then so things were starting to occur to me, like, well, why till at all? You know, let's see what happens here. There's no, you know, there's not compaction. There's not weeds that, you know, you can just move aside the mulch materials and, uh, Receipt. So, you know, certain conditions. Once the reduced tillage mindset was in place, just naturally moved to, you know, well, why till it at all if it's if it's not necessary? And then, of course, we started seeing results from that kind of work. And uh, it's which is not to say, you know, in in the agricultural community, there was talk about reduced tillage by the 90s or 2000s. I mean, there's a famous woman from uh, Connecticut, Ruth Stout. And, you know, I had her books early on. It was more gardening, but she was a super advocate of no-till gardening. Sure. So, you know, I was aware. And it wasn't like we were just making the stuff up either, you know, but it was a combination really of... But there weren't many moms watching. No, there was... and Yeah. No. And really the major thing that was we tried a lot of different methods of strip till we tried uh, uh, just mowing or crushing down cover crops at a at a flowering period to try to uh, get effective uh, death of a cover crop without tillage the and kind then, of the roller crimper roller crimper philosophy, philosophy yep and uh and strip tilling into you know really narrow slots to seed like a winter squash crop into a rolled down or mowed down, uh, winter rye. And, you know, so we were experimenting constantly. And it was, uh, and there were some successes and some failures. Uh, We did not, uh, the rolling down and mowing of the cover crop with little strips tilled was not effective for us we had we had terrible problems with uh, slug damage in those years I remember and the weeds would not die uh, if there was a few weeds in that crop and so and then we couldn't weed cultivate effectively because there was so much residue so there was a lot of little things that needed working out oh which I should point out you know I talk about no-till a lot and I do interviews and I talk and you know go to I can't give enough information in these kind of short interviews to really. And so I would definitely say read the book I wrote, No-Till Intensive Vegetable Culture. That's right. Because that book has very carefully laid out all the little details, which I'll touch on now here, Yes, but it's and it, in and such a short time, it's easy to get something wrong. You that's know, right. And,
2: and and just to say right now that this interview is not intended as a lesson on how to do mm-hmm. no-till no till intensive vegetable right. farming. Right. You know, you give great three day workshops on mm-hmm. this, and yeah. you wrote a book, a, yeah. a good book. Even so those
0: workshops aren't enough. The they aren't enough. Book book has has, it has it all there. carefully laid out. You yeah. know. Statement after statement in great detail. So I would encourage people to look that over if they're interested in no-till. But uh, no-till intensive vegetable culture from Chelsea Green. Yeah. So, but getting back to, uh, we were talking about moving into the no-till direction. So, you know, uh, a lot of trial and error and just uh, we approached it very slowly and it took probably a solid decade uh, from going from those garlic beds that we seeded, realizing we didn't need to till them, till we were fully into a no-till system. And like I was telling you earlier, even if if we enter into a new field or start new fields, you know, we always till. We we set a stage very carefully with tillage implements in order to move our production system into no-till. So you know, it was, it was a slow progression. Some of the early things that, that really, uh, two, I'll just mention two m- kind of important aspects that allowed us to move into our present uh, vegetable production system that are worth considering. And those are when we moved into a permanent bedding system so that the wheels of the tractors and equipment go down the same pattern across the fields year after year. With the, which re, relieves the need for us to till, to release compaction from the equipment. Mm-hmm. So to set up the, the permanent bedding system really moved us into a whole nother world of needing less tillage and then the other major breakthrough was when we realized how to solarize uh, mown vegetable or cover crop residues and weeds which is the ability to if if there's tough vegetation in place we realized that we could cover it with clear greenhouse plastics in the hot sun and it and it would eliminate any annual vegetation growth once it's been mowed down and covered well in a 75 or 80 degree condition. Uh, And it could eliminate all weed growth, crop growth, cover crop growth, as long as it's annuals in a single day.
2: So you cover, just just so people hear that, so you take some clear poly, some greenhouse Mm -hmm. plastic, you lay it on the ground. Do you
0: have to work to seal the edges or you just put some mm-hmm. bags on the edge? Sandbags, maybe about every 20 feet. Generally, you know, if you're looking at lower temperatures, say it's just 75, then it is better to have it sealed down, you know, to keep the heat in underneath. But if you're looking at an 85 or 90 degree day, you know, you need much less yeah. securing
2: and and the and the effect the effect of that in one day is that all the annual seeds and the remaining plant detritus it's all dead mm-hmm. you You mentioned earlier the slugs are dead slugs are dead too so yep. you don't have that yep. that haunting you for the next crop, yep, and when
0: you take that off, you've got a clean seed bed, clean slate, yeah, you know. Uh, obviously, like we said, the perennial weeds can't be in the field. You have to control those with yeah. appropriate tillage beforehand or whatnot. But yes, elimination of the annuals, just complete uh, browning off of the soil surface. All the chopped organic matters are now a mulch material. And great start with slugs. And so. Uh, That breakthrough allowed us to integrate no-till into basically the entire farm year round. As I was saying earlier, if you don't have the temperatures and you still need to cover, uh, then we would use a black tarp, like a silage tarp, to cover the vegetation. But a black tarp takes weeks to starve a plant of light in order to kill it. Uh but basically, here, you can reliably solarize May through September, and often there's days in April and October that you can also sneak some solarization events in pretty much so that covers most of the year for us, and as I was showing you earlier uh if if you can get the crop grows to the point in the, in the system functioning well enough where you don't really have weeds. Uh, and when, so say when we're harvesting our root vegetables this time here, turnips or something, and there's no weeds in the bed, we're back to that garlic example where there is nothing, there's no need to solarize anything. You can simply come in with the next planting or the cover crop and uh, uh, take it from there.
2: How much of your land gets cover cropped in a year like what percentage of your land
0: will you get get at least well there's everything just about almost always have a winter cover. pretty much all of it gets a winter cover we're down to maybe we'll do a quarter acre or half acre of low tunnels over the winter and so some of that land will not have a cover crop on it in the winter uh you know uh a good portion of it might have a spring cover crop, you know, when we put on after that crop is done. But so basically everything has, at this point, generally sees at least one cover cropping period over the course, sometimes two, you know, kind of depending. Are are there fields that you just set aside for a year with a cover crop? We haven't set any sections or fields apart for just like a whole summer cover Mm -hmm. crop at this point. Maybe someday, you know, there's sections. We'll put buckwheat in here. We'll put field peas in there. You know, it's kind of depending, you know, on the various areas and stuff. So, you know, we'll mix some summer stuff in too. But uh, we're not pulling large chunks out for summertime at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we talked earlier about how much compost
2: do you use I, there, there are definitely uh, farms that uh, say that they're no-till. They, they are no-till, but but they put on five inches of compost every year, which mm-hmm. is effectively.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I mean, it, it is no-till, but it it isn't really. It's a different thing. It's it's mega composting. Yeah, smothering things. With, it's just smothering. Yeah. It's a mulch. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. you were talking more like one inch a year.
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly, it it really depends on the field, of course.
2: Yeah, like
0: we have a field here that has received compost applications for thirty years. Yeah, and we don't put an inch of compost on to yeah. that field. You know, uh, very small. Uh, you know, you can. We we generally apply a little bit of compost to it over the course of a year. You know, and we multi-crop. A lot of places get two, three crops a year on a right. given piece of land. So you know, there's there's opportunity for compost application before all of those uh, changes in in uh, crop. But usually, if we're applying compost onto a rich soil, it's it's you can see the soil through the compost. So it's just there's there's shards of compost. Yeah. So it's a very thin application. If you, if you If you smoothed it all out you know maybe you could say it's a quarter inch of compost or something you know. Uh, And then of course on the newer lands like I was showing you earlier uh, lands that we've just been on for a year or two that were very deficient in organic matter or at least reasonably deficient in organic matter uh, that we could easily put an inch of compost on probably at a minimum you know once a year maybe do that twice yeah you know so somewhere in that realm and you know and then everything in between depending on soil conditions but i would also say that the compost manufacturing is very important uh because you make make your own compost all of it yeah all of it and which, you know, is many tons. I mean, if we're doing, as a guess, 30 tons of compost on a newer four-acre field, you know, that's like 100 tons or 120 tons of compost manufactured. So, you know, it's a significant yeah. project. Uh, and But I would say, you know, when we manufacture compost on the, on the newer field, it needs to be more nitrogen-rich, so, we, we increase the nitrogen to carbon ratio and, you know, there's specific minerals we blend in for that field condition as well. As opposed to a field that's had compost and minerals applied to it for 30 years, it needs a very different compost. So, it's much, much more carbon-rich, uh, and a different mineral profile to go into the pile, too. So. You know, often compost can get slandered because of over-application. Often the compost, it's, you know, granted five inches is probably too much, you know, but uh, maybe not. Well, it's not for me to say. I I didn't mean that. I just mean... I wouldn't. It could I, cause problems. I wouldn't exactly call that a no-till system. That's right. All. And five inches yeah. of compost, if it's nitrogen rich, yeah, you know, is going to cause problems. Yeah. But five inches on a starred field with a better blend, not so nitrogen rich, perhaps, might well do do justice to it. So it's it's like most things, you know, the 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 details are what really matter. Yeah. You know. So so just. Briefly,
2: because the other thing that I think is appropriately really talked about or thought about is the source of materials for compost. Oh, absolutely. So mm-hmm. y- your source for your materials is, I'll let you say, but it's, it's basically mm-hmm. local, local materials.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, so the carbon materials, the bulk of the pile is uh, wood and leaves from the wood chip from the tree grinding and the leaves from local leaf collection in a rural environment. Uh, in terms of compost contaminants, chemical contaminants, you know, those materials, leaf and wood chip, are pretty much seemingly and regarded by the compost industry as, as pretty much as, as good as you can do. Yeah, you know the chance of chemical contamination is pretty low in trees. Uh, There is garbage sometimes from leaf cleanup, and certainly when we've tried to use urban leaf collection, there's just way too much garbage. Mm -hmm. So there's there's some garbage you got to deal with, you know, plastic bags, cigarette packs, or whatever. but generally, we just work with smaller landscapers and stuff in the, in the environment, and, and they're, they're respectful and try to make it as clean as, as possible for us.
2: So. And, and, and they donate those materials to you because it's a service for them to be able to just put them someplace? Yep. Leaf
0: and wood chip can yeah. both be easily be free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the bulk of materials uh, essentially are... You know, zero dollars sometimes. I might have to truck things, you know, whatever, transportation, but uh, essentially the materials are free.
2: And, yes. and, and animal
0: manure, you said you use And And some... the animal manure also uh, can easily be free. Uh, so we do bring in cattle manure from a local cattle farm that uh, has winter feed pads for feeding hay. Is that a, a dairy or a beef? No, beef animals, beef, beef cattle. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and the beef cattle are just maintained in uh, a very uh, a much acreage, large yeah. large farm, but just they they have full access to fields and forests year round. You know, there's no they're not confined in any way. Yeah. And, uh, but they do feed them on these pads in the winter, which were nicely developed concrete pads in the fields. They feed them grain too? No, no grain. So So they're grass fed fed cattle and, you know, it's just, it's pretty much a perfect, uh, situation. So grass fed, they, you know, the hay is cut on the farm. So they manage their own hay production too. So they know what's going on with their hays. And so, you know, those, that kind of, uh, manure is is pretty much ideal cattle manure is widely regarded from for centuries as the best appropriate manure source for vegetable growing and uh, you know obviously those uh, the digestive tract of the animals is is phenomenal you know I've certainly trialed many manures over the years and I, I would certainly agree you know that a nice clean cattle manure gives great vegetable response So uh, yeah, very. You know, with composting, you have to be very careful with your feed materials for the piles. In terms of, there's so much chemical contamination. There's so much low quality materials out there that it pays to be very careful. Yeah, you would you would be really dubious
2: about uh, using manure from a a large confinement operation as being a, a probably a compromised product? Did I hear you? Did I understand that
0: right? Well, again, it's there's a complexity involved yeah. because most vegetable producing areas and vegetable fields that I go on are actually compost-starved. And so I would, of course, encourage everyone to get as clean a material as possible, but you know, you're, there's also fields are starving yeah. for organic materials and manure is a, is extremely useful, especially from uh, cows or cattle. And so it really, the composting system itself helps decom- decontaminate materials. Yeah. And, you know, there's no perfection, really. Everything's contaminated to some degree. It's that you just want to stay away from so much contaminants that it overwhelms the benefits, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's 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 a whole scale, and you know, you've got to try to land yeah. as high as possible on the scale, but you know, you still got to, you know, give the ground what it needs right. you know, at the same time.
2: So you would put compost down as you're preparing a bed. You've 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 solarized it, perhaps, and, and now you put a light dressing of compost and then you either broadcast seed or you, you could transplant or you'll, you'll knife in some seed mm-hmm. in a, in, with a row seeder. And this was interesting to me, you know, just to touch on the fact that you then like to mulch the soil with a different mm-hmm. material, not with mm-hmm. compost. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that?
0: Sure. So when you apply compost, we're not tilling the soil, so the compost is going on the surface of the soil, and compost, of course, is in a protected environment in its pile, and so essentially, and compost isn't just nutrients; it's also biology. It's a living material, and so when you when you take it and you spread it in a thin layer across a field, you're exposing it to drastic environmental conditions that can completely deteriorate its quality and so uh you know dry it out wash it away or whatever you know mostly dry it out though between the sun and the wind and uh so you want to protect that compost so we come over the top of the compost with uh you know depending on the crop the seed the transplant you know various levels of, of mulch material which is usually chopped leaf in wood chip, we often mix in a little bit of uh, silt and clay material from uh, local quarry uh, for additional seed covering water retention and the fields also appreciate a little bit of clay because we are in pretty sandy loams. So, uh, you know, we, we cover the compost with undecomposed materials to shield them from, from the effects of the atmosphere but also, to provide more moisture for seed germination, covering for seed germination, and of course mulch materials to reduce weed germination yeah and and you've said that
2: sometimes you need to rake that mulch material mm-hmm. off into the paths where you mm-hmm. where you like a little more mulch right because you're you're not you're not doing all that other stuff there, and that's mm-hmm. where the tractor tires run. that's great, um. I know you know. There's a lot of details to what you just said. I, I know that, yeah, and yeah. people should read your book if yeah. if they want to really, you know, save themselves a whole lot of heartache and and mm-hmm. and get it get it right or faster. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is really helpful to just get an overview. Mm-hmm. So one of the things to say is that what you do
0: now is quite successful. It works. Works extremely well. Uh, dramatic improvement in. Uh, Crop quality and profitability. As I was telling you, we have more time off, uh, and uh, if you want me to hit some of the major benefits of the no-till system, the changes we saw were, of course, uh, extreme reduction in insect and disease pressure. Uh, uh, extreme improvements if weed control, Uh, like we used to spend tremendous labor controlling weeds with cultivation and hoeing, weed control efforts, our weed control efforts are probably, uh, I would guess, less than 5% of what our weed control efforts were before no-till and our changes. Uh, the crop quality is so much higher because of no uh, weeds, way less insect and disease pressure, and the nutrient is much higher in the crop which is why there's no insect and disease pressure to speak of. And so then the crops harvest quicker there's less calls of number twos dramatically less and then the the crops themselves store extremely long for longer sales customers are happier the crops look and taste better so the customers respond with the vibrancy and taste of the crop
2: and yeah, let's not let's not minimize taste yeah right yeah I mean yeah. that that that's the it's best primary. indicator we have about, about, about nutrition, coalition. right? You know, mm-hmm. it really is, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay. You can also see it with your eyes, the you vibrancy see
0: mm-hmm. the colorations of the crops are much better. Yeah. Uh, and then there's savings in irrigation, tremendous improvements in irrigation because of no tillage in the mulch layers. So we do great in a drought year because it's sunny all the time and there's plenty of ground moisture. Uh you know soil quality improvements in terms of you know drainage characteristics we can we can work the field at any time because it's never too wet. Uh, the equipment can always go on the field because it it drains so well and we're not tilling for any reason, so the the weather never stops uh, seeding or uh, compost applications; like everything, just moves all the time, so so it doesn't wash away. <clears throat> yep, soil is away. always protected or blow away. I mean, the improvements are so dramatic, and profitability, of course, follows all of those things. Yeah, yeah. You know? So let me ask you a question,
2: uh, Brian. There's a lot of talk about no-till now, mm-hmm. uh, and and. Tremendous amount of money. The government just gave $2.8 billion to Climate Smart Agriculture. Mm-hmm. And as near as I can figure what they mean by that is they mean no-till. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, most of it went to large multinational corporations mm-hmm. who are the um, world leaders in spraying crops, fertilizing crops. Yeah. But they do like no-till, but mm-hmm. it it does involve herbicides. Right would you consider herbicides to be a reasonable compromise to not till or do you go, well, no, that's
0: the wrong answer too? Uh, I mean, we have a personal dislike of pesticides as I was pointing out earlier. So uh, I would not consider that really in terms of my own production system, uh, the way I would approach my piece of land. Uh, I understand other people are under other constraints and, you know, have different uh, considerations, but uh, I don't see uh, really, like, once we get up to speed and humans understand all these systems, I think that we can move to large-scale systems that can be either no-till or extremely reduced tillage and get tremendous crop growth and abundance. So as I told you earlier, I'm not a no-till purist. We still use tillage equipment. We would certainly use tillage equipment if we needed to, if there was a perennial weed outbreak or something, you know. And so there's there's conditions to, to be able to use a little bit of tillage in the earth. What it really comes down to is that the earth is willing to give to us. And, but we have to give back. And unfortunately what's happened is that people haven't been giving back to the earth. And so the earth is withdrawing from us and giving us less. And if we simply approach the earth with a a different outlook and approach, And a little tillage is earth would be more than willing to, to operate and give us abundance with a little bit of tillage. If we're careful and mindful and like, you know, do things really, uh, in cooperation with earth and natural forces, uh, tillage is not really the problem. Like I said earlier, the organic method with tillage worked great for us for a long time uh we would still be doing that probably if the earth wasn't withdrawing its abundance uh but when the earth withdrew its abundance we had to change how we operated and now we operate much more respectfully and closely with uh the earth's systems we basically you know the no till and the layering of those organic materials is is basically just mimicking how nature fertilizes the forest, you know, and that's, you know, if you go into the forest, it's covered with a mulch layer underneath. is organic matter decomposed. Another that under that is the soil. And uh, so we just, just working close more closely with uh, natural forces and not doing such dramatic damage to the environment where you, things have to be taken to such uh, uh, levels of uh, careful uh, you know attention to get such vibrant crops you know would go a long way towards just easing the whole difficulties uh, of, of modern crop production yeah yeah
2: well, Brian, we could and have talked for hours and uh, but I know you got a delivery tonight yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> it's dark and you got you got work to do so. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Dave.
0: A pleasure. I love talking with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. Our movement is growing because you're subscribing and sharing these podcasts with your friends. Keep it up and leave us a rating and a review as well. As always, you can find a video version of this interview at realorganicproject.org and on our YouTube channel. Please join us next week when we'll be hearing from Denesse Willie, who along with her husband, Tom, ran an organic vegetable farm in California for over four decades. Dinesse's role on the farm was in sales and marketing, and she has much to share about the changes she saw in distribution and consolidation over the course of her career.